right, a formal welcome to Lesson 2 of Secrets of the Bible. This is November 3rd, 2020, a very, uh, very interesting day, and I am very grateful that you're here with me tonight to study some Torah, study some Kabbalah, and hopefully to walk away with some life lessons. So I want to begin with a question. What is the best story in the Bible? The answer is the story of Noah, because it has the best ark. Jerry, you're muted. <laughs> you can't be. Don't worry, I have, a, I have a few more. All right. Where did, here's the next question. Thank you. Where did Noah, where did Noah keep his bees? In the archives. The archives. Thank you. And finally, Finally, this is one that I think many of you have heard before, but nonetheless, I am almost obligated to say this in the context of tonight's class. Why was Noah the best businessman? The answer is because he floated his stock while the rest of the world was in liquidation. <laughs> All right. Folks, it's been real. Thank you very much for joining me tonight. No. All right. We are just getting started. <laughs> no, we're still here. Um, so, friends, you are in for a big treat tonight. We have the most incredible story to take apart. And, of course, tonight, as you might have uh, noticed, tonight the story that we look at is Noah's Ark. And we all heard the story as kids. We all heard... Give me one second. I want to make sure that everybody's able to get in. Okay. So we all heard this story as kids. And the story goes that the world was corrupt and God wishes to destroy the world. So he tells Noah to build an ark and rescue the animals. So Noah builds the ark. God brings the flood. Everyone on the ark is saved. Everyone not on the ark is destroyed, and after the world, sorry, after the flood, the inhabitants of the ark rebuild the world. That's the story that we heard as kids. That's the basic rundown. Um, but there's so many questions. You read the story, and we're going to do that. We're going to read the story from the inside. There's so many questions that come to mind. You see, when we learn the story of Noah's ark as kids or in our youth, Right, So we're only just scratching the surface. Embedded in the story of Noah's Ark are deep, deep, deep secrets. Secrets about human nature, about relationships, about purpose, and about existence itself. The teachings of Kabbalah, of Kabbalah Jewish mysticism, reveal these secrets to us. And that's what we're going to explore in tonight's class. So once again, like we did last week, our class tonight will follow a very structured five-step formula. Step number one, we'll tell the story. In step number two, we'll ask the questions. Step number three, we'll present the Kabbalistic insights. In step number four, we're going to answer all the questions that we asked in the biblical tale. And in step number five, we're going to extract life lessons from the narrative. So again, in short, step one, well, I'm not going to say the steps. We're going to tell the story. We're going to ask questions, we're going to share the Kabbalistic insights, we'll answer the questions, and then we'll have the lessons that we take away from the story. 
Five steps to an amazing, amazing learning experience that is on tap for tonight. So we have so much mind-blowing wisdom to get to. Let's roll. We begin by reading the story. It's important to read the story from the inside because although we may know the story, we're going to be analyzing the specific nuances that come from the text. And remember what I said last week, and that is that Kabbalah, the Jewish mystical teachings, are the soul of Torah, the soul of Judaism. So you have the stories as they appear on the outside. That's the body. The story beneath the story, that's the soul. Well, you can't explore the soul without understanding the body. So the first thing we're going to do is understand the body of the story, read it in the inside from the, from the text, from the verses themselves, and then we'll get to the Kabbalistic insights into the story. So, and as I did last week also, I want to ask you to think of questions that you have on the story. So I'm going to read, I'll do this, I'll do the reading, I'll read the story, but think of questions that you have on the story of Noah's Ark, and as soon as I finish reading the story, the first thing I'm going to do is ask you for your questions, I'll add my questions, and then we're going to rock and roll from there. Does that make sense? Yes? All right. Fantastic. Good. Let us jump in. Um, okay. Uh, just reading some of, the, some of the chats. Okay, so the way we're going to do it is like this. I think most of you should have received the book. Some of you, the books were a little bit delayed and are arriving probably latest tomorrow, Wednesday, which doesn't help for tonight. So the way we're going to do it is I will be sharing my screen, and on my screen I have the text, and that way we'll all be on the same page quite literally. All right, give me a moment as I share my screen. All right, this is lesson two. Okay, I hope you can see the screen. Again, if you have a book or if you have a copy of the PDF that I emailed earlier, uh, then you're good to go. Uh, but if it's easier to read it like this, then abi gesund, then that's also good. All right, text 1-8. Genesis chapter 6, starting from verse 5. I'm not going to give you the chapter and verse. It's there. You could see it in the credits. Um, I'm going to start reading. Okay. God saw that the evil of man was multiplying upon the earth. And that every impulse of the thoughts of his heart is only evil all day. And he was pained to his heart. And God said, I will erase the human being that I've created from upon the face of the earth, from man to beast to crawling thing to birds of the heavens, for I have regretted that I have made them. But Noah, Noah, our hero, found grace in the eyes of God. Okay, next. These are the descendants of Noah. Noah was a perfectly righteous man in his generations. Noah walked with God. Noah fathered three sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth. Next, God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupted as all flesh had corrupted its way on the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, as the earth is filled with violence from them, and here I will destroy them from the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, and coat it from within and from without with pitch, and thus you shall make it, 
300 cubits, the length of the ark, 50 cubits, its width, and 30 cubits, its height. Bottom, second, and third levels, you shall make it. And I, here I will bring the flood of water upon the earth, God says. All that is on the earth shall expire. I will establish my covenant with you, and you will come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you, and from all that lives, two of each, bring into the ark to keep alive with you, male and female, they should be. And Noah did as all that God commanded him. So just to quickly summarize, we read about the corruption, God's decision to destroy. We read about Noah's righteousness, God's commandment to Noah to build an ark, and the survival plan. Let's continue with the flood. In the 600th year of Noah's life, he lived a long time. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, all the wellsprings of the great deep split open and the hatches of the heavens were opened. And the rain was upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Just to explain, wellsprings of the great deep, in other words, water came in from below the earth and water came in, rain came from above. Let's continue. Uh, this is, uh, the ark is raised above the waters. The waters increased and they lifted the ark and it rose above the earth. And the ark moved upon the surface of the waters. And the waters surged upon the earth 150 days. And God remembered Noah and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind pass over the earth. And the waters subsided. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark rested upon the mountains of Ararat. The waters went on diminishing. In the 10th month, on the first of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Let's continue with God's command to Noah to exit the ark. And it was, this is line number 63. And it was in the 601st year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was fully dried. And God spoke to Noah to say, go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you, all the animals that are with you, take them out with you. Okay, let's continue. <coughs> this is now text 1b. Noah built an altar to God. This is the aftermath of the flood. What happens next? Noah built an altar to God, and he brought up ascent offerings on the altar. God smelled the soothing aroma, and God said to his heart, Nevermore shall I again curse the soil on account of man, for the impulse of the heart of man is evil from his youth. And nevermore shall I again smite all living things as I have done. God blessed Noah and his children, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and the awe and dread of you will be upon the animals, upon all animals of the earth. In your hands they are given. God said to Noah and to his children with him to say, And I, here I am, establishing my covenant with you and with your seed after you and with all living souls that are with you. My, my bow I have set in the cloud and it shall be as a sign of a covenant between me and the world. And it will be when I darken clouds upon the earth and the bow, it's the rainbow, will appear in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and between you and all living souls 
that the waters will not again become a flood to destroy all flesh. This is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and between all flesh that is upon the earth. And that concludes our reading of the narrative. Noah's sacrifice. Beautiful. Okay. Make sense? That's the story. Stories you remember it, more or less? Yes? All right. Noah's Ark. Good. I asked you before to think of questions, and now I turn to you and ask you, please share your questions. Any and all questions, welcome. What do you, have, what do you find strange, interesting, peculiar about the story of Noah's Ark? Go ahead, Ray. Well, they don't mention that it was seven of each clean animal. It only talks about two of each animal. Well, that's because this text that we just read was edited for the sake of length. Can you imagine as long as this reading was, there were verses that were cut out. But you are correct. There were seven of the kosher animals that were meant to be brought into the ark, and they were, they were ultimately used for sacrifices. So you're correct, but it was just cut out of our edition. It's in the original. Um, but good point. But any questions on what we read? The big question Jay. I have is why isn't there a dialogue between Hashem and Noah about the people? Why are we going right away? We're going to kill everybody. Where is the dialogue? Why doesn't Hashem speak to Noah about Doing something, reverse the trend. Excellent question. People out. Excellent question. Why, why are we immediately going from zero to destruction? Or not zero, whatever. Going straight to the worst case scenario, destruction. Why not attempt, at least, to turn the ship around? All puns intended. <laughs> right? Okay, good. Any other questions? Questions? Bring, bring, keep the... Yes, Lauren, go ahead. I have a question. Okay, I tried to type it, but it said something else and it, yeah no worries so, so does that mean that we're direct descendants of noah and not adam and eve correct correct that will actually become relevant later on in the class excellent point excellent point in other words all of humanity is wiped out and the remaining lineage is coming literally from noah and his three sons and their wives that's it yes that's a great point and we'll see how that connects dr maxi go ahead so it seems as though the way the verses read, or as you read them, God is like having a conversation with himself in the beginning. It's like, why did I do this? This is such a mistake. These people are like evil to the core. And then toward the end of the verse, when he's making the new covenant, it's like he acknowledges we're just evil from our youth. And he accepts that. I mean, what's up with that? Excellent question. In other words, initially... Man's corruption is used as a pretense for destruction, pretext for destruction, right? Or pretense. I think I had it right the first time, right? And then later in the narrative, right, God's like, oh, people are impossible. Let's get rid of them. And then later it's people are impossible. What can you do, right? It's kind of like, ah, you know, people, right? What are you going to do, right? So is it a cause? Is it a rationale for destruction or rationale for compassion, right? Which one is it? Is that your question? Yeah. Good. Excellent question. That's one of my five. Okay. All right. Um, Jerry, go ahead. Uh, two questions. So, A, God makes mistakes. How, how can that be? Good. And the second question is, we take two of every species of animal. What about all the rest of the animals who were innocent victims? Ooh. Now you're asking the good questions. Wow. 
How is it right to destroy the whole world and the animals and everything? What's up with that? Excellent question. That's your question, right? What kind of justice? What kind of, uh, what kind of God does that? I mean, that seems extremely, extremely harsh and disturbing. Excellent question. That's also one of my five. Hold on one second. Hold on one second. What, Jay, hold on one second. Rhoda, go ahead. Noah was a righteous man in his generation, but in his generation, it's not comparing to much righteousness. Excellent. So how righteous was he really? Right. Was Noah good? Compared to Abraham negotiating with God to save at least 10 people, Noah just takes what God says and does it. He just thinks of himself. Good, good, good. No, Noah seems to be maybe uh, a little bit, you know, in, in Yiddish we would call Noah a tzaddik in pelts. That means a tzaddik in a fur coat. The way it's explained in Hasidic, I, I'm, we're not, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but the way it's explained in Hasidic philosophy is when it's cold outside, and we can relate here in Atlanta, um, I actually, so on our, uh, my wife and I on our phones, we have a few cities dialed up for weather, just, you know, just in case, like New York and we have a brother-in-law in Texas, so we have Frisco, Texas up there. We have Chicago. My son's in Yeshiva, Chicago, whatever. So we were looking this morning, and Atlanta, of all the cities, was the coldest. Chicago was 41 degrees. Atlanta was 39. Anyway, what's my point? The point is when it's cold outside or inside, what do you do? There's two things, two approaches. One is you can put on a coat, or number two, you can light a fire. What's the difference? If you light a coat, if you, not light a coat, if you, that's another, that's a third option. If you wear a coat, only you are warm. If you light a fire, some others can benefit from it as well. So Noah is the ultimate tzaddik and pelts. He's righteous, the righteous guy in a fur coat. He's like, listen, the hell with everybody else. I'm safe, right? That's it. <laughs> Let everybody else burn or, or drown or whatever it is. But at least I'm safe. Yeah, what kind of righteous guy is that? Good point. Excellent point. All right, we'll see if that connects. Um, Mindy, go ahead. Um, I never really noticed this before in the story, but as you were reading, and there's a reason for everything, so I'm wondering what was the reason um, behind being so specific about, you know, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day, like it's so specific of, of his age and it, why. I mean, they didn't ha it didn't have to be mentioned. I, I, there's always a reason for mentioning something, so I was wondering, like, why so specific about Excellent question. age and those years. Good. And then um, another question is, <laughs> my nine-year-old son was just in here, and he said, ask the rabbi if the animals helped build the ark. Excellent so, question. I promised well, I would add, because I think he thinks that all the animals chipped in to help. So, them. yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I'll tell you this. The woodpecker was absolutely banned from the ark. <laughs> yeah. And the termites and whoever else could cause damage is like, you get on your own ark and you figure it out yourself, my friends. Do not chip away at this thing. Um, good question about the animals. I know no who built the ark. Um, regarding your first point, the Torah is very specific about timeline. Um, most understand it. I'll just give a, the, the, the basic understanding. Basic understanding is that it's giving us a, an, a framework of understanding that the flood lasted for about a year. From when it began to when it ended, it was exa almost exactly 365 days which is a full year. So, but why specifically how many years, how old Noah was? It's a good point, good question. So let's hold that question. Jay, you had a question. You don't, you don't, in, in the commentary, they don't talk about the fish. 
Ah. He got all the animals in the ark. I'm assuming the fish stayed in the water, but they lived. But he was going to banish everything from the earth. Oh. What happens to the fish? Good question. So did the fish survive? If, 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 yes, why did they survive? Right? Why were they the only ones to survive without needing to be on the ark? Imagine a bunch of fish tanks on the ark. Be like, you have plenty of water out there. What are you doing in here? Taking up space. Um, the fish were probably like, wow, so much water. This is great. Haven't seen these levels since, uh, I don't know. Another question which is always perplexing to me is he banishes everybody from the earth. Everybody dies. The people are survivor in the ark. What about the Nephilim? He's got Og and Sihon. That. The Nephilim, they survived. They're hanging onto the top of the mountain. You're saying, what about, what about the, the, the giants who, according to the tradition, also survived? Why aren't they mentioned? Good, good, excellent. Good. Mike, go ahead. Rabbi, just going back to the basics and knowing nothing appears as it, as it, as it might, why was water weaponized? Ah, oh, that's such a good question. Excellent question, excellent question. That will be one of the keys to tonight's lesson. One of the key ideas is about water, and you hit, you hit on something major, right? And I think the premise of your question is, I mean, there's two ways to ask the question. Number one is, why is water weaponized? Number two, doesn't God have so many tools at his disposal? Why specifically use water of all things, and what's the deeper significance? That is going to play a major role, major role in tonight's exploration. So good. Good, 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 good thing. Let's take one more question. If there's one more question, let's do it. Um, I'm going to quickly look at the chat box. Um, why, what is gopher wood? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know what gopher wood is. I wouldn't know gopher wood if, I, if it was standing in front of me in Home Depot. But I imagine it's a type of wood. What are you going to do? Gopher wood is a wood. And what is pitch? Pitch is kind of like, um, like a tar, pitch and tar. It's like a thing that you would use to... You know, if you're building an ark and you wanted to waterproof it, you know, your basic construction stuff. All right. Um, oh, what were the wives' names? So um, uh, Noah's wife's name was Naama, Nama, and their son's name, uh, their son's wives' names, I do not know. Was Noah actually a, a tzaddik or just a bainani in the time of Rishayim? So we don't know. Was he pure? Was he a a really righteous person or just the best of the, the best of, the, of, of whatever, you know, the folks that lived then? It's a debate amongst, amongst the commentaries. Rashi, it's, a, it's, a, it's actually the subject of a Talmudic dispute. And Rashi on the Torah, the great biblical commentary, Rashi cites both opinions that some say he was, if he was righteous in that generation, can you imagine what he would have been like in a, in a not-so-terrible generation, he would have been really amazing. Some say, no, he was only righteous relative to that corruption, but on his own, he would be not, uh, not so kosher. Adi is asking, were his kids righteous as well? The implication is that at that time, they were. Although, as the narrative continues, which we did not cite in the text that I read, um, his son, Ham, or Ham, the way it's written in English, but I'll just do the Hebrew because it sounds better for me at least, and I get to clear my throat. Ham uh, did something pretty, uh, pretty not so nice to his dad after the, the flood was over. So it seems like at the time they might have been all righteous, but later they all went their own ways. Okay, so I want to add my questions. And some will overlap. Well, I should say thank you very much for, for sharing your questions and for, for starting this conversation. I'm going to share my questions. Some will overlap. Some will be new.
but they're all going to point us in the direction that we are looking to head. Okay, number one, and this question was asked, is why does God destroy everyone and everything? It seems super, super, super harsh, and it frankly seems a bit disturbing. You mean to tell me that everyone was equally guilty? What about the children? What about the animals? Everyone was guilty? Everything needed to be destroyed? That sounds extremely far-fetched and frankly, again, very disturbing. So here's the approach that we're going to take. Now, usually the, the method that we do is we ask a bunch of questions and then give the insight and that gives like the mystical insight and that knocks down all the questions, that gives all the answers. But I'm going to pose a quick answer and then it's going to lead to another question. You'll see, you'll see what I mean. So the first question on the table is, why does God destroy everything and everyone? Super harsh. Okay. So we, the only answer we, we, we could come to that we can conclude, I can't say it's the only answer, but one of the answers that we can conclude is that <laughs> due to the free choice given to human beings, which we explored, which we touched on last week with Adam and Eve, right? With our first story. So due to that free choice, um, it was entirely possible. If you take free choice to its extreme, if you say human beings have the absolute free choice to do whatever they wish, whenever they wish, however they wish, and God is not going to get involved, right? If you say that, if you posit that, then it is possible to imagine a scenario where the world becomes so corrupted that it's beyond repair. In other words, where things become so messed up that God says, we are done. Listen, I gave you full control. I'll give you an example. And I'm going to use a technology example. And again, for some it will resonate, for some it might not resonate. But here's an example that comes to mind. So in the, one of the differences, phones, between Apple and Android, for example. You know, Android is the, is the operating system owned by Google, and of course, iOS is the operating system owned by Apple. One of the differences is that Apple um, typically makes it harder to jailbreak or root the phone. Whereas in Android devices, it still takes some skill, some know-how, but it's a little bit easier to hack into the phone and to customize it in ways beyond the way you get it in the store. So you can get your device and it's set up a certain way with certain features, certain capabilities, and certain restrictions, like certain permissions that the user does not have. But at certain devices, you can actually root the phone, gain root access, and that means that you can actually go in and on a deep level change the way things work. Well, the problem with that is that if you mess up, if you do the wrong thing, you know what happens to your device? You brick it. You know what that means when you brick it? That means that the only thing this can be used for is a brick, not a phone. Right? It's basically, it doesn't work anymore. And if you come back to the manufacturer and say, my phone doesn't work, they'll say, did you play around with it? Yeah, well, not our fault. We tried to lock it down. You hacked into it. Not our fault. So you have other systems, again, like iOS, like Apple, like the iPhone, 
that are much more secure for, for, by the way, for a variety of reasons, also including to optimize the user experience so that users don't customize it to the point that they mess it up. So the creator has a vision, they have a vision, and they say, this is the way your phone's gonna look, all phones are gonna look like this, it's gonna be more or less the same, I mean, you can determine which apps you have, but it's gonna look a certain look. We don't want you getting too involved in customization, certainly not in, in hacking into it, into the, you know, the deep systems of it. We don't want you to mess it up. Use it and enjoy it. If you give someone absolute free choice and full access, is it possible they can mess it up? Yeah. So the question on the table, question number one is, how, why does God destroy the whole world? Right? Everyone and everything. So my answer is, is it possible to conceive that God having given human beings free choice, it's possible for human beings to have so messed up the world, so corrupted the universe, that the only choice God has, so to speak, I mean, I don't want to limit God, I don't want to tie God's hands, but the only, can't say the only, the most viable choice for God at some point, could we imagine that, that might be to say, we're done. It's, it's too, you bricked it. You bricked the phone. The phone doesn't work anymore, right? You went, you, you, you hacked into the phone, you rooted the device, you messed with the core files. It's it, that's it, it doesn't work anymore. Is that a possible scenario? Yes, yes. It's possible. If you give full access, you can cause utter destruction. And so God, our simple, under, you know, first, first approach to understanding is God gave full access. And because of that full access, the human beings mess things up, not only for themselves, but for all of the entire creation. Okay, so that's an answer. I'm not saying it's a great answer. I'm not saying it's a perfect answer, but that's an approach to understanding why God said, decided to destroy everything. But that leads me directly to question number two. That, that, that question itself was a setup. Question number two is, so then why after the flood does God say, I will never again destroy the world? If there's a scenario, given free choice, where human beings can theoretically absolutely corrupt the system to the point that it's beyond repair. If that's the case, sorry, if that's possible, so then why isn't it possible after the flood? And if it's not possible after the flood, why was it possible before the flood? Understand my question? It's either or. If it was corruptible, utterly corruptible before the flood, then it should be utterly corruptible after the flood. And if it's not utterly corruptible after the flood, and the proof is because God says, I'm not going to do this again, which might indicate that it can't be corrupted to that level, well, then how could it be corrupted beforehand? Understand the question? Yes? Let me recap the questions. Question one is, how does God destroy the whole world? Or why? The, answer, the, the first approach answer that was, well, it became really corrupt. Then our question is, well, if it, could be, if it became really corrupt and given the nature of free choice, it could become so corrupt, then it could become corrupt again. So then how does God promise after the flood it's never going to happen again? How do you know? <laughs> Maybe it'll go off the rails again. What kind of promise is that? Okay. 
Question number three. And this again touches on a question, not touches. This is a question that was asked in our conversation before. What's the difference between God's rationale to destroy the world and God's rationale to never again destroy the world? I'm going to share my screen with you once again, and I will show you some verses that we are going to compare and contrast. Take a look at page 44, figure 2.1. I'm going to make it even a little bit bigger so that everyone can see it. If you're looking at the screen. God saw, this is from before the flood. God's rationale to destroy. God saw that every impulse of, th of the thoughts of man's heart is only evil all day, and he was pained in his, to his heart. And God said, I will erase the human being that I've created from upon the face of the earth, from man to beast, to crawling thing, to bird to, of the heavens, for I've regretted that I've made them. So that's the before. Human beings are, their impulse is evil. They, they have to be gone. After the flood, Genesis 8:21, on the right side, the right box, God said to his heart, nevermore, Shall I again curse the soil on account of man? For the impulse in the heart of man is evil from his youth. And nevermore shall I again smite all living things as I have done. What's the rationale? I won't destroy because the impulse of the heart of man is evil from his youth? That sounds like the same rationale for destruction. God says I'm going to destroy because the human impulse is evil. Then God says I'll never again destroy because, you guessed it, the impulse of the human heart is evil from his youth. What is the difference? How can the same rationale be used for both? It seems a little bit arbitrary, which then begs the question, what changed? Did God just have a change of heart? It's like, you know, the same information can be construed two different ways. So then, but what determined that? God woke up on the wrong side of the bed and decided, oh, human beings are no good. That's terrible. Let's get rid of them. And then God woke up on, a, you know, the good side of the bed. And he said, oh, you know, I feel bad. What are you going to do? I feel Rahmanis. I feel compassion. People can't help themselves. They're just, you know, they have that uh, corrupt bug inside of them. Oh, well, we'll give them a pass. Which one is it? How could it, be, how could it work both ways? So that's our third question. Let's continue. Uh, don't worry. I'm going to summarize all the questions. You can write them down if you want. Um, you don't have to. I'm going to go, I'll, but I'm keep, I, I, I'll continue. Question number four. And this also came up. I'm realizing now that most of the questions that I have um, came up in our discussion before. So kudos to you guys. Um, why does God need a flood and an ark for this whole business? It seems, honestly, if you think about it, it seems that God chose possibly the most complicated way possible to get rid of humanity. I mean, think about it. We're talking about my gosh, listen to all that has to go into this. God has to tell Noah to build an ark. And then it takes Noah 120 years. Yeah. God told Noah when he was 480 to build an ark. It took him 120 years to build an ark. He must have been Jewish. I know, I know, listen, I know there are some Jewish builders, but I also know a lot of Jews that when they walk into Home Depot, they're like, can you tell me what the thing to hit the other thing in? You mean a hammer? Yeah. Where can I find that? So I'm just saying that it took Noah 120 years to build this ark. So, and then he has to herd all of the animals in, and then it starts raining, and then it starts flooding, and then it floats for a while, and then the waters have to recede, and then Noah sends out a few birds, which we, you know, glossed over, and we didn't you know, focus on that. And then finally the earth dries up almost a year later, and finally he and his family disembark. So, yeah, I said that, this in the ark. So here's the question. 
Why did God choose such a complicated and convoluted way of destroying the world? It seems highly inefficient. Let God, I mean, listen, I'm not advocating for this, so let it be clear. But if God chose to do this, let it happen in a more efficient fashion. God could have simply taken out everyone and everything that he doesn't want to be there. Could have been a plague, an insta-plague, could have been a fire, it could have been an asteroid, it could have been, I don't know, vanishing dust. Who knows? God could have just, you know, whatever, just, you know, etch a sketch, you know, things out of being. Who knows? It could have been a much easier way. The, the flood seems like the most long-winded, complicated, convoluted way to wipe out the world. So what's the point of the flood and the ark? It's not my question. This question originates, well, I can't say originate, but one of the early sources of this is the Meshech Chachma, which I will share with you right now. Num text number two. I'm going to make my screen a little bit smaller now. Text number two. Oh, he was actually a modern, 1843. Okay, it's a more modern formulation of the question, but it does go back to earlier commentaries as well. Here we go. The flood lasted a full 12 months. This despite the fact that the entire flood was a supernatural event and the survival of Noah and the animals in the ark required special divine intervention. Being that this was the case, why couldn't God simply destroy all cre creations in a single instant? And honestly, he is even um, positing that it could have been with a flood. But let the flood work quickly. Why this long-winded scenario with you know, 40 days and 40 nights of flood waters and then 100 of rain and then 150 days of flooding and then another 150 days or so of the waters receding. Like what's really, what's the whole point of that? It seems very, very long-winded. The final question I'm going to ask, and if you're counting, this is number five. The final question we'll ask now is, what's with the rainbow? And I don't think anybody mentioned that, but I'm going to mention that right now. What's with the rainbow? God says... I'm never, I, I, I promise to never again destroy the world with a flood. And as a sign of my promise and my covenant with you, Noah, as a, as a sign, I hereby place my bow, my rainbow, in the sky. How is a rainbow, this is my question, how is a rainbow a sign of God not destroying the world? Are, I mean, what does that even mean? First of all, why the rainbow? Second of all, how is the rainbow a sign of God's covenant? Isn't a rainbow a very natural phenomenon? Like, isn't it a normal thing that when it's rainy and then it's sunny that there's a rainbow? What, what, what kind of, it seems very bizarre and arbitrary and nonsensical that the rainbow should be a sign for God's promise never again to destroy the world. So that we have so many questions. To recap very quickly, number one, this whole story of, Destruction seems extremely harsh. What's, what's, what's up with that? Question two, if there's a scenario where corruption is so deep that the world needs to be destroyed, then why isn't the possible after the flood? Why does God say never again? Question number three, how do we explain the distinction between God's rationale to destroy and God's rationale to never again destroy? It seems to be citing or pulling on the same logic of man's corruption. Number four, why does God need a flood in an ark anyway? Just take out whoever you want and, and be done with it instantly. And question five, what's the deal with the rainbow? Isn't it an entirely natural event? How, how is it and why is it a sign for 
lack of um, uh, never again destroying the world. Okay, these are the five questions. And honestly, we could ask 25 questions. We could probably ask 55 questions. But we have to cap it somewhere. I chose what I think are some of the stronger questions and the questions that um, I felt, uh, you know, we would all be able to relate to more or less. So now that we have the questions, we can get to the heart of the matter. We can get to the soul of the story. Because that's where the answers are to be found. You know, this whole course, Secrets of the Bible, the whole premise is that there's a story that you and I read on the surface, but then there's a story beneath the, the story. If you want to know what's really going on, you got to understand the spiritual, psychological, emotional, Kabbalistic underpinnings of the story. And that's what we're about to do right now. So here's the big idea. There's actually a few big ideas. Here's the first big idea. And this is, this is really beautiful. And it touches on the notion of symmetry. There's a symmetry that I actually wonder if anybody picked up on. And I'm going to ask it now in the form of a question because I want to see if anybody can think of the symmetry that I'm thinking of right now. Can you think of another biblical story that contains parallels to the story of the great flood in the ark? Can you think of another biblical story that contains parallels to the story of Noah's Ark that we just read? Joy. So if you go back in the beginning of Genesis, it was water and things were created from water and animals and fish and all of that came from water. Excellent. Excellent. Beautiful. So let's focus on that for a moment. You see, there are very strong parallels between the original story of creation, Genesis 1, and the story of the great flood in Noah's Ark. You might not notice it right away, but once you see it, you can't unsee it. In fact, I'm going to share with you now five parallels, uncanny parallels, between the flood story and the creation story starting right now. Number one, in both cases, the world emerges from water. Think about it. In the beginning, what's the, what's the original state of, of, of the world? Submerged in water. Don't worry. If you don't, if, if, if you don't know what I'm talking about, we're going to cite the verses in a moment. The original state of the world is submerged in water. And then... God separates the waters, divides the waters, allows the waters to recede or to gather into one place. Dry land emerges. Life begins. Likewise, of course, with the flood, we have flood waters inundating the earth, receding, and then once again, life resumes. So parallel number one is the world emerging from water. I'm going to share my screen. Let's jump into the text from the book of Genesis. Okay, text number three. So, you know, I actually read text two, and I realized, why am I reading the text? But I didn't cut myself off, but I usually ask you to read. So, Ray, if you're up to it, Ray, if you're up to it, please unmute yourself and read text number three. The earth was desolate. The earth was desolate and void, and darkness was on the face of the watery depths. 
and a wind of God hovered upon the surface of the waters. God made the firmament, and he separated between the waters that are below the firmament and the waters that are above the firmament. And God said, The waters below the heavens shall pull to one place, and the dry land shall be seen, and it was so. Thank you. I want you to pay attention to these ideas. Number one, the water, the, the earth is submerged in water. Number two, there's a separation between upper waters and lower waters, heavenly waters and earthly waters. Then we have waters gathering to one place and dry land finally emerging. Oh, and one more thing. There's a wind of God. You notice that? A wind of God hovering upon the surface of the waters? It's uncanny. It's uncanny. You have the same four items in the flood story. You have a world submerged in water. You have the water coming from higher waters and lower waters. Did you notice that? Remember, I even pointed it out before I dropped the breadcrumb. Right? Remember before I mentioned there was water that came from the springs below and from the apertures from the... Um, they didn't use the word aperture. They used... Um, Whatever. From, the, from above also, so it rained and it came from below. That's like lower waters and upper waters. And if you notice also, um, uh, it says um, Genesis 8, 1, it says God made a wind pass over the earth. Whatever. If you recall, we, I read it before. There was a wind also involved in the Noah story. And then the waters dried up and then dry land emerged. You have all four items. Submersion of water, higher waters, lower waters, a wind, and the waters drying up to, to allow dry land to emerge. You have all those parallels in both stories. That's, that's uncanny. Again, you, you, you could completely read both stories and never put the two together. But when you read it like this, you realize, well, wait a second. That can't be by accident that these stories line up like almost point for point. That's incredible. Um, Okay, give me a second. I'm looking at the chat because there's some really great questions here. Um, okay, Adina Malka asked, what about free choice? How could there be free choice without commandments? So there were commandments. that um, God gave some commandments to Adam. Basic commandments, six basic commandments. To Noah, he gave one additional one, but there were basic um, human decency commandments that were given that were being violated. What was the nature, Jerry asked, of that corruption, the nature was basically human-on-human -human violence and um, harming each other. That was really the key. The key, the, 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 the key corruption was human against human. There was also people you know, denying God or going against God, but the main thing was people not getting along amongst themselves. Um, ah, yes. Rose, you got 100%. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, Mike. Okay, so I'm going to read, I'm going to, I, I have four more parallels, um, but I think I have four more. Yeah, I have four more parallels, and then I was going to say this, but let's, let's, let me say this right now. Let me read what Rose wrote, and then let me explain what she's saying. So in a technical sense, the reference um, is to a re the reference to Genesis is a reset of Genesis is starting over. That's exactly where I'm going with this. In other words, why does the story of the flood parallel Genesis? To tell us 
that what's happening with the flood is not just destruction, but it's recreation. There's the original creation story, or what I'm going to call throughout this class, creation 1.0 and creation 2.0. Just like the first creation happens through water, the second creation happens through water. Just like there's submersion in water, submersion. Um, higher waters, lower waters, higher water, lower. A wind, a wind, a divine wind, a divine wind. Water receding, earth emerging, water receding, earth emerging. Let me give you more parallels, and I'm going to say this again, but I could not hold back on that comment because that's spot on. Let, let me now jump into the second parallel. Right, We're now back to the parallels between the flood story and the creation story. And this is going to blow your mind. This is Kabbalah. You ready? Both worlds emerge. Both the original world of creation and the new world post-flood emerge from language. Think about it. Language. Speaking. Language. How, what, what do I mean? Well, how does creation happen in Genesis 1? God said, let there be light. There was light. God said, let there be a firmament. There was firmament. God said, let there be dry land. And there was, or etc. So God spoke existence into being. Correct? Yes, that's what Genesis tells us. God said, and it was. And how does the new world emerge? From where does the, the, the new world, the new creation post-flood emerge? From the teva, from the ark. You know what teva means in Hebrew? You know what the word teva means? Teva means ark. It's a box. But you know what else teva means in Hebrew? You can look it up. Tuf yud bet hey. Teva means word, language. You got it. The same word in Hebrew that means ark also means word. I know it's meta. I don't mean to confuse anybody. But the word for word in Hebrew is teva, which is also the word for ark. There's a reason, by the way. Because just like the ark is a container, words are a container as well. Right? Language is a container. You put letters together and they form a word which carries meaning. The meaning is like the entity in your container of letters. Are you with me on that? Just the, the construct of language? Language is a container that holds meaning. So if I give you the letter C-A-T, cat, oh, you picture a cat. But no, you just had letters. The letters of the container that hold the concept of cat that's found in that. Are you with me on that? The, the idea of... of, of Vessel of container and, 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 and substance. In the language of Kabbalah, it's R and Kali, light and vessel. So you have the vessel, then you have the light. Not literal light, but metaphorical light or content. So anyway, getting back. It's kind of like, um, uh, we might say, form and function. Right? Form and function. Form is the physical form, and the function is, what's the purpose of that form? So, but I don't want to veer too far off into Kabbalah. Let's get back into this into this grammatical idea, which is expressed in Kabbalah, and that is that the word for ark in the Torah is teva, which is the same word as the word for word, which means that just like in the, in the beginning, creation emerges from God's word, so too by the flood, the world reemerges once again from word, from the teva. The word slash ark. Are you with me on what I just said? Yes? Okay. If, if that's not 100% clear, don't worry. It's not, it's not going to change uh, the trajectory of, of our discussion. The next parallel 
Five parallels between creation story and the flood story. And again, spoiler alert, what we're getting to is that this also was a creation story. Right, the flood is actually a creation story, creation 2.0. But let's talk about the third parallel, and that is mankind's mission. In the beginning, God creates Adam and Eve, creation 1.0. And what is, what is God, the first thing God says to Adam and Eve, unmute yourself and tell me what is, what's the first commandment, the first mitzvah to Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply, right? Make more people. And what's the first thing that God tells Noah? We read it inside before. After the flood, what does God tell Noah? Be fruitful and multiply. Again, parallels. Parallels. There's a, if you line up the story side by side, you suddenly notice, oh my gosh, water, water. Right? Upper waters, lower waters, upper waters, lower waters, wind, wind. Dry land emerging, dry land emerging. Language, language. Teva. Um, now we have this um, be fruitful and multiply, be fruitful and multiply. It, it's, it's uncanny. I have more. Utopia. Both have elements of utopia, of perfection. In the beginning, what was the utopia? What was the setting of utopia? What, what do we call it? Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve lived in utopia. And in the story of the flood, what is utopia? This may be a little bit um, non-intuitive, but according to Kabbalah, according to Jewish mysticism, the ark, the ark was a mini messianic state of being. What do I mean? Can you imagine all the animals living together on the ark? Hey, forget that. Can you imagine all the people living together? Can you imagine a family living together, a mishpacha living together on the ark for a full year and not driving each other bananas? This is before internet. I'm telling you, this is before, you know, sorry, dad, I got to go on my phone here and get away from things. No, this is like, this is just everyone around each other. You know what it says? One of the Messianic pro uh, prophecies talks about the... Um, the, um, uh, the wolf and the lamb living together, yeah? Never happens. You can't have a predator and, a, and prey living together. You know where they did? There was a state on planet Earth that it... Consider the ark when you say Teva, natural, like, like Don Eden. Like, yeah, so that's the point. It's a parallel. So just like there was paradise with Adam and Eve, there was a certain element of that paradise. So let, let me show you what I'm talking about, because let me, let's actually look at it from the Kabbalistic text. Okay, this is text four. All right, here's from a mystical text, and let's... Jerry, please read. If you're up to it, Jerry, please... Unmute yourself and go for it. Noah's Ark was a prototype of a future era of, of Mashiach. Within the Ark, every type of animal lived together, yet they did not harm each other in any way. This presaged a reality in which, quote, the wolf will, will dwell with a lamb and a, and a calf and lion together. This being a similitude of the future world when they shall neither harm nor destroy all of my holy mountain. So we have prophecies from Isaiah that speak about the Messianic era. And, and what marks the Messianic era? Look at this, so beautiful. The wolf with the lamb and the calf and the lion. 
and no one is going to harm nor destroy in my holy mountain. In other words, no predators, no violence, no nothing hurting anything else. Live and let live and live in harmony. Kumbaya, baby. Right? That's Mashiach. That's world peace. Even to the point of the animals. And where was that replicated? Where was that experienced? One time in the Ark of Noah, in Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark was peaceful. There's one story, one story that's told in a medrash where Noah was late to feed the animal. You might have heard this before. And the lion swiped at Noah's arm and hurt his arm or his leg. I forget which one. One of the two. Uh, maybe his arm. I think his arm. There's one story, but in general, the animals were on their best behavior. According to Kabbalah, it was a mini-Messiah, Messianic era. It was a mini-Mashiach. And again, that utopian state parallels, interestingly, the utopian, the, the utopian state of the Garden of Eden. So again, parallels between the creation story and the flood story, they both have a utopia built into the story. Joy. So... Isn't, it also, to me, seems like there's also a, a very stark contrast. So the very rationale that God used to destroy the earth, i.e. it's violent, people are killing each other, the animals are, you know, not acting nicely, etc. And then, as you point out, within the ark, here they are all getting along, and it's sort of like a very stark contrast. So maybe part of the answer to the one of the questions is, is, in the ark, within the ark, mankind demonstrated uh, our ability to live peacefully and to live as we were created to live in Gan Eden. It's a great strategy with kids. The kids are fighting, put them in the same room together. You got to figure it out now, right? But it's, I, love the, I love the insight. That's not necessarily exactly the direction that we're going to take today, although it's not necessarily, you know, radically different. But may, maybe we'll be able to fit it in. We're gonna go. We're gonna use slightly different language. But but hold that thought because I, I really like that idea. Mindy, go ahead. Uh, two questions. One is what what did they eat? What did all the animals eat? Ah, the, because if, if the you know what were they fed? If they good. Only the carnivores. And they didn't harm each other. Then what did they eat? Was the, it like a mana type thing? The or? carnivores became herbivores. So all of the animals that are used to eating other animals basically ate vegetarian or plants, sushi. Same with the people? The people also? Yeah, yeah, for sure. The, yeah, people, they, we didn't eat the animals. I mean, I'm, not we, I wasn't there. But Noah, no, they didn't eat the animals. That Noah would be like, God's like, I told you two of each. What's going on? Not what, like, what are you doing, Adam? Yeah, that could be a comedy bit, but no, no. That, that definitely... Uh, no, he definitely, they definitely did not eat animals. There was no, um, no animal eating. You should know before, uh, from the times of Adam through the flood, human beings were not allowed to eat animals at all. And meat was not, was not permitted. It's only after, after the flood, and this is not, some, not, uh, not related to tonight's discussion, at least not immediately related. I'm sure everything's related on some level, but it's only after the flood that God gives permission to, add to Noah to, if he wishes, to eat, to eat meat, to eat animals. But before that, it was actually prohibited. Um, another quick, yeah. sorry, another 
another quick question. Sure. Um, how many years or generations between the creation story and the Noah story? Ten. How many years is that? Ten generations? Yeah. But they lived longer. So it's not a, you know, whatever generational time span we have today. It's not the same. Noah lived 950 years. So he lived another 350 years after the flood. Man. Live, try to live with that. Talk about PTSD. That was, I'm sure that was not easy. I don't, I don't blame him for uh, planting a vineyard and uh, saying a little... I mean, I, I can't, you can't imagine what that must have been like living through that, through that tr just straight-up trauma. But anyway, that's, uh, I, I don't mean to, to take it too far off track. But yeah, there was a different generational gap. There, in general, it says in Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers, in Chapter 5 of Ethics, 10 generations from, Ad from Adam to Noah and 10 from Noah to Abraham. So those are your first 20 generations of humankind, Adam to Abraham. Why no meat before the flood? I don't know. That's what God said. Why meat after the flood? That's what God said. <laughs> there are reasons for it. But again, I, I don't, I don't want to get too far off topic. So let's jump, into, let's jump back into our parallels. Again, we're still in, in, in parallels. Trying to explain how the flood story parallels the creation story. So we spoke about the water. We spoke about language. We spoke about being fruitful and multiplying, the mission. We spoke about the utopia. And now let's speak about the family number. Yeah? With Adam and his wife, Eve, it was a family of five. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and Chase, Seth. Five. Two, parent, two, uh, right, two parents and three kids. Well, with Noah, it was also five. Noah and Amma and the three kids. Now, I know the three sons had wives, but so did, well, Abel was killed, whatever. So theoretically did the first family. Nonetheless, the immediate family is also a unit of five. Again, stack the stories next to each other, line them up, and you'll see there are lines that you, we can draw between them. Therefore, the conclusion... And I mentioned this before, but um, it, this is really, it, it's really a dramatic conclusion. The conclusion is that the story of the flood is quite literally intended to be another act of creation, not destruction. You and I typically read the story of the flood and say, oh, God was destroying the world. That also happened, but what was intended with the flood was actually a recreation or creation 2.0 of the world. You see, if it was totally, completely intended for destruction, then yes, God could have used any sort of means to destroy the world or to take out those other than the ones that he saved and be done with it. It could have been a blink of the, uh, a snap of the finger. In fact, according to Kabbalah, that talks about the notion, the doctrine of constant creation, which is essentially that God, like a hologram, God is, or like a film playing on a, you know, you're sitting in a, a movie theater and there's a film playing, you know this, if, the, if there's a film being projected onto the screen, you know that if you turn behind you, you're going to see a, a light being beamed, a projector being beamed onto that screen, right? That's how it works. And if, if, if that power goes out back there, your movie's stopping. According to Kabbalah, the same thing is true with the animation of this world. At every moment, God is constantly recreating, reanimating existence, which means that if God wants characters to be out of, this, out of the film, right, he doesn't have to destroy them 
Doesn't have to write them out of the script. Just has to cease to reanimate them in the next moment. Are you with me what I'm saying? God doesn't have to destroy to take out. God simply doesn't have to further create. So why does God bring the flood? And again, we already have the answer. I'm just asking the question kind of rhetorically. We have the answer. The answer is it wasn't about destruction, although that also happened. It was about creation, which is why there's water, which is why we have all the parallels. It's a second act of creation. There's the first creation. Eh, it didn't really work out. Then there's creation number two. This answers the fourth question we asked before and at the beginning of the class, why... Why the flood? Why the ark? Why such an elaborate method of destruction? The answer is because it's about creation. And the ark is an important piece of that as we will explore. Let's take this a step further. You see, <coughs> notwithstanding or despite all of the parallels that we just cited between the creation story and the flood story, there are some important differences, very important differences. There are three differences that I, that I in, intended to share. I don't know if I'm going to share all of them. Uh, let's see how many we get. Um, uh, so let me explain where we're up to right now. I, I don't want anyone to lose the, 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 tr the, the train of thought here. So we explained the parallels. We explained the parallels between the story of creation and the story of the flood. And that tells us that the flood was also a creation. A recreation. And yet there are differences. Which is why we have, which is why I'm, I'm referring to it as creation 1.0 and creation 2.0. The sequel. They weren't exactly the same. A few key di distinctions. Number one, God made the original utopia. The Garden of Eden. God made that. Who makes the ark? Noah. Noah builds it. God commands it, but Noah builds it. So although there's a parallel, both have a utopia. One is built by God. One is built by human beings. The Garden of Eden emerges after the original waters subside. The ark. So the first utopia is only emerging after the waters are gone. The second utopia, i.e. the ark, exists alongside the floodwaters. And it floats on top of them. The third distinction is that mankind originally emerges from only one of Adam and Eve's sons. Although I mentioned that they had three sons, Cain, Abel, and Seth, mankind really only originated from the third son, Seth, because Cain killed Abel. And Cain himself was destined to a life of wandering and didn't really populate the world um, with progeny. It was mankind really only emerged from one of those three sons, from Seth. Whereas when it came to Noah, so all three of his sons became the father of humanity post-flood. So we have the idea of non-diversity and diversity. Uh, maybe a singularity, I don't know if that's the right term for it, um, a monolithic type of, uh, of, of origin story when it comes to Adam and Eve's progeny, where all the children, all the sons are coming from Seth, whereas when it comes, whereas in the story of, of Noah's Ark, humanity reemerges from all three sons. There's a measure of diversity there. Now, taken individually, these might seem like 
small distinctions. Yeah, I mean, more or less the stories line up. You're pointing out a nuance here, a nuance there. Yeah, they both have a utopian state. Garden of Eden and the Ark. You're telling me that one was created by God, one was created by Noah. Big deal. It's more or less the same. Why are we getting so, so stuck in the weeds? But the truth is, every detail in Torah is significant. And as the Kabbalists explain, these details are highly significant in understanding, and this is really the point, why the second creation worked so much better than the first. I mean, you already know that, right? Because the first one was destroyed and the second one can't be destroyed. Are you with me on that? Yes, right? If both are creation stories, which we've, which we've come to the conclusion, there's the first creation with Adam and Eve, the second creation with the flood, which one worked out better? The second, the second. But now we need to understand what was different between the two. So, but, but here's the point. They were both creation stories, but done in a different way, a different type of creation. Originally, we have creation 1.0, the new and improved version, is the creation that happens after the flood or with the flood in that scenario, which is creation 2.0. The first creation had a destruction trigger, which was triggered. The second one is much more sustainable. It can't be destroyed. Let's explore why and how that is true. To understand the soul of these two creation models. So I feel like I want to take a half a step back and just make sure that everybody, literally everybody is with me right now. So we, 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 I'm going to go through very quickly the steps. We presented the story of Noah's Ark. We asked a bunch of questions. And then we started lining up the story of Noah's Ark with the story of creation. Our conclusion was it's too uncanny to ignore. The Torah is indicating to us that there are two forms of creation, the original creation story and the new creation story. My newest point, the latest point that I made is, that there are enough differences between the two creation stories for us to learn and to understand why the second creation model is more sustainable than the first. The first one, God destroyed. The second one, God said, I cannot destroy. I will not destroy. There's a reason why. It wasn't just a change of heart. God's like, eh, I'm not going to do it again. It was because fundamentally, the second creation was built on a different platform. And based on that new platform, it was more sustainable. So what's the difference between creation one and creation two? I'm glad you asked. To understand this, we need to look at the nature of relationships. Now, every relationship implies that there are two parties that are relating. Otherwise, it's not a relationship, right? A person on a desert island alone is not in a relationship. With my apologies to Tom Hanks and Wilson, if you recall that, uh, that film, Castaway, um, with my, uh, you can't be in a relationship with a volleyball. It's just not, it's not a thing. Maybe you can whatever, but it's honestly a relationship with your own imagination. So a relationship implies two beings that are relating to each other, yet, and here's the very important thing, there are two models of relationships. The way we're going to understand this is by looking at the relationship between a teacher and a student. And what we're going to do is we're going to read text number six. Here we go. Uh, Mindy, please read text number six. This is the Rebbe's insight into the flood and creation stories and the distinction between them, based on Kabbalah. 
We can better understand the difference by using the example of a teacher imparting ideas to a student. One approach is that the teacher explains the idea to the student, but does not train the student to understand it on their own. The second approach is that the teacher provides the student with the tools by means of which the student can study and understand the idea on their own. Each of these two approaches has an advantage over the other. In regard to the personal development of the student, the second approach is better as only this approach imparts the ability to independently learn and understand. But in regard to the quality of the reception of the idea itself, the first approach is better because the way that the student understands the idea on their own is inferior to how the teacher teaches it. Thank you. So I'm going to share this in my own words and elaborate on it. We have two types of educational pedagogical models. There is what we would call frontal teaching, frontal instruction, and then there is facilitated learning. I'm using now a little bit modern terms of pedagogy of, of education. So one form is, and this is, I would say, you know, like the old school model, if you will. The teacher has the wisdom, the teacher has the information, and the teacher is giving information to the student. So the student is listening and getting the information, and the premise is the teacher is wise, the student is going to learn from the teacher, and that's it. Second approach is the teacher is not giving, not sharing the wisdom. The teacher is giving the tools. The teacher is giving the student or allowing the student to learn and gain the skills. Now they, on their own, they can learn. I'll give you an example. This is like a, a yeshiva example. Right? I went to yeshiva for many years, and in yeshiva, one of the things that you study is Talmud. Right? You study Gemara, you study Talmud. There are two ways to study Talmud. Right? One way is, you have a teacher that teaches you the concepts. And the other way is, you can learn how to learn Talmud. And there's a difference, because in the first model, you need the teacher. Because without the teacher, you can't learn Talmud, because you're learning from the teacher. In the second model, you can learn on your own. And you don't need the teacher anymore because you have the skills. So there's, there's teaching information or imparting information. And then there's facilitating the student to learn on their own. As the Rebbe said in that quote, which Mindy just read, each one has an advantage. The advantage of facilitated learning, the second model, is that now the student with regard to development of the student, that's by far the greater, the, great, the greater model, the better model, right? Because now the student is learning, is growing, is understanding how to learn. It's wonderful for the student. But with regard to the actual information itself, I mean, who better to present the material than the teacher, you know, for, straightforward. Here's the information. You got it? Good. Fantastic. So with regard to the information, the wisdom itself, the first method is better. With regard to the development of the student, the second way is better. Different models, different approaches. So the way I'm going to refer to these models in our conversation for the next 10 minutes or so, I'm going to refer to the first model of education as top-down and the second model as bottom-up. And what I mean by top-down and bottom-up is the top-down approach is the sage on the stage, right? I'm giving you information, take, receive the information. Got it, got it, got it, got it, right? So 
delivering information, top down. The bottom up is where the student is empowered to learn on their own. Maybe to ask questions, to learn, to, to delve into the material and come to their own conclusions. There's more vulnerability with that second approach. There may be less accuracy, right? Ultimately, though, it's a more sustainable approach. Because in the first model, if that relationship breaks down, the learning is over. You with me on this? Are you with me on that? If that relationship breaks down, it's done. It's done. If the teacher walks out or the student walks out, there's no more learning. In the second model, the teacher can leave, the student can leave, the student has the skills to continue and to explore. Yes? Make sense? Okay. This explains the difference. We're going to jump right back into our story. This explains the difference between the two creation models, the original creation model and the new creation model post-flood. Creation model number one, Genesis 1, right? Beginning of the Torah story, right? That was a top-down model. God did all the heavy lifting. God did, God did everything. God brought the water. God cleared the water. God created land. God created all the creatures. God created human beings. God created the Garden of Eden. God did everything. That's like the teacher that's doing all of the teaching. God did everything. Right? So what happens if the teacher leaves or if the student stands up and walks out? It's over. So what happened when the student, when humanity says, God, we're out? That relationship is done. Because the students don't have the skills. God did all the heavy lifting in that first model. And therefore, it's all over. But creation number two, the flood narrative, that was a bottom-up model. God brought the flood, yes, but Noah was empowered to build the ark. Noah was the one that built that messianic-esque space of floating paradise. It wasn't God that built that paradise. God built the original paradise, the Garden of Eden. God did not build the ark. God empowered Noah and his family and even the animals to sustain themselves. It's like the teacher who empowers the student to learn on their own. So in this model, even if at some point the student gets up and walks out and maybe goes in a different direction, there is still hope and there is still trust that the student has enough of their own wisdom and insight and skills that they'll be okay. They'll figure it out. You gave them enough that they'll figure it out. Think about kids. Think about kids. There's a certain stage in parenting early on where you do everything for your kid, right? Kid can't eat on their own. You feed them. The kid can't move from place to place. You carry them. The child can't function, essentially, without the parent. But then as development continues, you teach them the skills to live independently. That's the way it works, right? You give them the skills. You give them the know-how. Not that they should always need you, but that they should be able to stand up on their own two feet. And one of the greatest joys of parenting is when the children take their first steps, right? It's a wonderful thing. Oh, 
You're independent. And the next great simcha is when they get the driver's license. That's it. You no longer, that's it. No more driving you around. Now you pick up your brother. That's it. By the way, I'm speaking from personal experience, still waiting on that. Nassan, my oldest, if you're listening, let's get on that. He's 16. When he's in town, I don't need to be doing carpool runs. Again, this is, if Nassan, if you're listening to this, this message is for you, bud. No, I'm kidding. So anyway, the point is like this. Independence is the goal. It's the goal of teaching. It's the goal of mentoring. It's the goal of counseling. It's the goal of parenting. You don't want an appendage. You want independence. Yes, that's the goal. It's the ultimate goal. So God created a scenario initially where there was independence. It was all God was doing all the heavy lifting. So when humankind said, we're out, God said, well, then there's nothing left. So we need to undo this model. And God created a second model. The second model is one in which human beings are empowered with the skills and the know-how to build their own paradise, to build their own arcs, to build their own sustainable universe. And even if they'll get it wrong, God says, you'll come back. I know you're going to get it right. I have faith in you. You're going to come back. You're going to get it right. Here's how the Rebbe explains it. I'll read this. Text number seven. Such beautiful, mystical insights. So amazing how it's all together. Take a look. The goodness, and these, this is in a little bit of spiritual terms, but again, it all connects with everything that I... I gave you more psychological terms, but here are some spiritual terms, the same idea. The goodness that the world possessed before the flood, derived not from its own nature, but from bottom-up, but from the fact that it was so created by God top-down. Therefore, when the sins of the generation of the flood corrupted the world to such an extent that the earth was filled with violence, there was no longer any purpose to its existence. The world had fallen so low and had so far distanced itself from its creator that the divine desire for a world was withdrawn. Remember, if it's only top-down, it can be broken. On the other hand, after the flood... The world possessed the ability to elevate and refine itself on, sorry, I was going to highlight it, but I, I clicked the wrong button, on its own. That's the key. It was able to elevate and refine itself on its own, bottom up. Therefore, even when it falls into a very lowly state, it can repent and lift itself up. This is why God made a covenant that never shall all flesh be cut off and never again will there be a flood regardless of the world's moral state. In other words, at this point of reality of existence in creation model number two, it's a sustainable model. God has faith. You're going to get it right. I, I gave you the skills. You have the training. You have it inside of you. If you don't have it inside you, then we're done. As long as you were holding on, you were good, but when you let go, there's no hope. So God says we have to wipe that away. We have to clear that out and bring the waters back in. Remember, the right? We've got to start again. Bring the waters back in. New creation model. But this time, God said, I'm not doing all the lifting. I'm not doing all the teaching. I'm not doing all the suffusing of light. You're going to pick up. You're going to do some heavy lifting also. You're going to part participate in this. You're going to be an active partner in creation. You're going to be part of the paradise. You're going to create the ark. You're going to take all the animals. You're going to watch the animals. You're going to live with the animals. You're going to live with your family. You're going to make it happen from the ground up. And God says, therefore, I know that because you have that, because we're not, it's a new platform. It's a brand, build, building the world on a brand new platform. Because it's built on this new platform, what I'm calling 
between you and me right now tonight, creation 2.0. It's not a top-down model, it's a bottom-up, it's a user-driven platform, and the user has the skills of self-correction, God says, I don't need to destroy the world anymore. The first model needed to be destroyed. It was really more of, a, of an acknowledgement of God that it's not a sustainable model. Are you with me on what I just said? It was less about an indictment of mankind and more an indictment, I'm going to speak, you know, nicely, an indictment of model A, a model one. God is basically saying, this is not a good model. We need a second model. We need a, new, a, a different model. It's less saying that the world is... Humanity is, is corrupted beyond repair than saying that the model doesn't have self-correction built in. You know, everyone's worried about robots taking over the world. Do you know about this? Yeah. I can't say everyone, but it's a great plot line to think about. Oh, artificial intelligence, what's going to happen? Oh my gosh, right? It's going to be, it's going to be you know, wild and, and who knows what's going to happen. Yeah. Okay, if you, um, oh, 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 in the chat, we have the last question. I told you I had five questions. I wasn't telling you the full truth. I had six questions, and that was my last question. All right, ah, okay, we have three minutes. All right, I forgot what I was just, oh, our robots. Yeah, imagine if there was a self-correction module in the artificial intelligence. And therefore, human beings could rest assured that no matter how intelligent the robots got, they'd always come back to a good place. That's kind of what God, the, the, way, the, 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 the platform that God created in Creation 2.0. God created a platform where it's sustainable. Where no matter where we roam, how far we go, low, whatever it is, we're going to come back. God's like, I know you guys. I know what you ha I gave you enough empowerment that you're going to come back. In Model 1.0... It was all top-down. Once that was broken, there was nothing left. Model 2.0, bottom-up, there's always, there's always that, that, that foundation of healing that can happen, which begs the question. If Model 2.0, Creation 2.0, is the vastly superior form of the platform of existence, are you telling me that God didn't get it right the first time? God goofed? Whoops! I thought this was a good model. Oh, well, I guess you learn from experience. God messed up? No. I already gave you the answer before. In the previous text. Not the one that I just read. The one before that. The one about the teacher and the student. Remember what the Rebbe said? The Rebbe said that each model has an advantage. Remember that one? I'll say it one more time because that's the answer. Each model has its advantage. There is an advantage of model one. Right? Greater light. Greater light. Greater wisdom. Greater transmission. More accurate transmission. The disadvantage is you, you didn't cultivate the student. There's no independence. There's no self-correction, ultimately, in the context of our discussion tonight. But the advantage is an advantage. Right? When it's top-down, it's a much greater gila. It's a much greater revelation. Gila means revelation in Hebrew. It's a much greater revelation of light in spiritual terms. The downside is that the vessel hasn't been transformed, right? The recipient is still the same. It hasn't, nothing has happened. So what's the greatest, what's the greatest um, model? Having both, right? Where you have the light, the greater light from above coupled with the, the, the transformation from below. The, the, the top-down model coupled with 
the bottom-up model. That's the ultimate. And so God starts with creation 1.0. And then recreates 2.0. But the residue of 1.0 remains. Remember I dropped that clue about the ark floating alongside those floodwaters? Yeah. It means that there's a residue of the first creative model, creation model, alongside model number two. Because ultimately, the greatest form of teaching and parenting and mentoring, and this is true in business, empowering anybody that works on your team, etc., for success. It's about giving powerful instruction and guidance and also empowering success for the, person, for the, for the other person themselves. Are you with me on that duality? Yes? If you, if, if you tell the person, do, do the job however you want. Gain the skills whatever you want. You're cultivating, but maybe it's, gonna, it's not going to be aligned with the vision. The goal, the, the ideal is a strong vision along with strong cultivation. That's why there have to be two models, and they work concurrently. You have, not concurrently or successful, uh, successively, but also a little bit concurrently. You have model one, which is top down, model two, which is bottom up, and together it's the magical dynamic of life. So in the final analysis... The story of the flood is not about arcs and carpentry and animals and Noah running Meshuggah after a bunch of animals to feed them. The story is our story. It's about how to, how to parent children. It's about how to educate. It's about how to empower others, how to delegate, how to manage people in your company, how to work for someone else. It's about all of the above. It's about leadership. It's about I'm going to invent a new word, followship. That's not a word. It's about how to lead, but also how to follow. It's how to relate to others and how to relate to God. It calls upon us to listen to our obligations and to follow our obligations top down on our end, on our recipient. And at the same time, to take initiative. So for example, and this is what I was going to end with, but I'm still not ready to end, but I'm still going to say this. This week, we can take one resolution, two resolutions. One, to open ourselves up to something, a mitzvah, let's say, a good deed that we're not, we haven't done yet consistently, that might be a little bit of a stretch of our comfort zone, but to open ourselves up, to embrace that top-down pedagogy, if you will. God commanded, we're going to accept but at the same time this week, let's also do a, a 2.0, a bottom-up. God empowered us to use our own seichel, our own wisdom, to make the world a better place. What's one area of our world that we see that could use some sprucing up, that we can spruce up with our own unique talent, gifts, and abilities? Both are true. Both models are true. Both models are necessary. Yeah, the second model is sustainable, more sustainable than the first. But that doesn't wipe out, no flood pun intended, the advantages or the benefits of model one. So in the final analysis, the first model was a good model. The second model was also a good model. The first model is ultimately not sustainable on its own. But the second model is not successful on its own either. You can't just empower without strong vision. You need both. You need vision and empowerment in all areas of life. So, back to the questions.
Give me 30 seconds. First question is, why did God destroy everything and everyone? Well, it wasn't a sustainable model. It wasn't God being harsh. It was God recreating the platform and building on platform one with a second platform, with a different platform. The second question was, um, if the world became so corrupt one time, why can't it happen again and the world should be destroyed? The answer is, well, you, and I, you know now because there is this self-driven correction in platform number two. This third question was, what's the difference in God's rationale before and after the flood? Why did God first say, well, human beings are corrupt, let's destroy. And then God said, human beings are corrupt, let's not destroy. Well, the answer to that is about the seismic shift that happens in between those two narratives. Before the, the, the platform change, before creation model number two, um, the fact that human beings are so flawed is a reason to walk away from the whole venture. In the second model, that's just a reason to have more patience. Because human beings are so complex and so complicated, they'll come back. Don't worry about it. No reason to destroy. The fourth question, why did God need a flood in an ark? Because it was all about a recreation. It was all about creation model number two with the water and the ark and the, the utopian Gan Eden, Garden of Eden state like the first story. And what's with the rainbow? Finally, and we'll end the class with this. What's with the rainbow? Here are the physics of a rainbow. A rainbow is produced when the droplet of water suspended in the air refracts the light that hits it. So the pure white light that hits the raindrop is refracted in the raindrop to produce a beautiful, dazzling display of all of the inherent colors in that white light. Because the white light actually contained all of the colors of the spectrum. But it's until it's refracted by the water, until that time you can't see it. Once it's refracted, then you can see it. You know what that, you know what that models? A bottom-up. Bottom-up. It's what the raindrop does for the light, not what the light does for the raindrop. Right? The light is symbolic of what comes from above. The raindrop is symbolic of, of us. Before, before the flood, there, was, there were no rainbows. You know why? Because the raindrop didn't add anything to the light. Because it was solely a top-down model. Once there was the flood, creation 2.0 on a brand new platform. Now the lower elements, creation itself is empowered to make a difference on its own, to take the light and show its dazzling beauty for all. And that's the power of a rainbow, and that's the power of us, to take God's gift of life and make it something incredible. That's our job, that's our calling, that's our mission. This week, let's, yes, the laws of physics literally changed. Yes, yes. Before the water, which is, by the way, the water... I don't want to get too deep into it, but water is a product of evaporation, correct? The clouds are from evaporation, which means it's from us. It's what we elevate upward. The water is symbolic of us, and the light is symbolic of above. And so literally before the flood, the laws of physics were such that the water didn't refract the light. Because how could the lower add to the up? How could the student add to the teacher in the first model? The teacher is the sage. The student is just accepting. It's just receiving. In the second model, the student has the skills, and now the student can bring out an even greater depth. And that's the rainbow. And so we are called upon to be good stewards and to be good creators. To, to accept and to innovate. 
And with this dual model, we can truly make a difference. Thank you for joining me tonight. I appreciate the fact that we were able to share 90 minutes tonight. I know there's other things going on, one or two other things. I, I value the time that we have together studying Torah. I hope that for you, this has been a bit of an oasis, a bit of an ark amidst the turbulent floodwaters of what else, whatever else is going on in the world. This hopefully has been a teva, an ark, a paradise where we can all get along and we can all connect with Torah, with our heritage, and learn <coughs> some beautiful messages. Thank you, and I'll let you all go. Have a wonderful evening. Take care. See you next week. Oh, Jacob and Esau next week. Next week. The battle of the twins. Jacob stealing the blessings. Join me next week. Same bad time, same bad channel. We'll see you all. Take care.